It's good to be back here. Perhaps I'd better just explain my accent. I'm a Highland Glaswegian. <laughs> um, brought up very much in a, a Highland community in Glasgow. Uh, always felt themselves to be exiles in the big city. And my accent is uh, a sort of mixture of all sorts of strands. Uh, but typical Glasgow is not one of them. <laughs> it's good to be back. See so many familiar faces again, even though it was four years ago. And certainly it's good to see so many of you here on a night like this. It's pretty dismal out there. I hope we'll find together encouragement and matter that's helpful uh, as we look at this topic that's been assigned. I want to make it quite clear to you, I didn't think this up. It was given to me. And it was said, will you take this on? And I said, yes, I'll take it on. And I'll let you know one of the main reasons why I said I'd take it on. And that was because of the first theme. There was a series, the proposal was a series on knowing God. And the first theme proposed was that of the Trinity. And I thought, they've got it right. Because so often, when you think about knowing God, and when people approach this, you tend to begin in the wrong place. You tend to begin in a way that de-emphasizes God as person. And you get big words like omnipotence, omnipresence, and all sorts of things being mentioned. It's not the easiest place to begin with the doctrine of the Trinity. But if we're going to come to a true understanding of who God is, it's the right place to begin. Because this is what constitutes a truly Christian understanding of God. And ultimately, that's the only valid understanding of God, because it's the only understanding that has a real referent. The only God who really exists is the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. And the only way that we can properly and meaningfully uh, think about God is by molding our thinking to the contours of Scripture. May I quote John Calvin's Institutes? I'm going to mention Calvin quite a bit tonight. I hope that doesn't put some of you off. But Calvin has a lot to say on this matter. And in his Institutes he says, When God declares himself to be but one, he proposes himself to be considered in three persons. If we don't understand this, we have only a bare, empty name of God floating in our brains without any idea of the true God. Calvin was thinking there of the same problem I've just mentioned, of people saying, well, what is God like? And they think of all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful. And somehow it's tagged on at the end, God in three persons. And Calvin is saying, no, it's the other way round we've got to look at it. We must begin by considering the fact that God reveals himself as triune. Well, it's a big task. Where do we begin? Well, I begin by saying we can't do everything in one evening. 
uh, and I'm not proposing doing the Trinity for five evenings, so it's a sketch. And there'll be an opportunity at the end if you want to contribute, if you want to uh, say, well, there's something big you've missed out. We've got to begin by emphasizing that the doctrine of the Trinity is a revealed doctrine and that that revelation is found only in Scripture. It's a revealed doctrine. It embodies a truth that's never been discovered by human reason, that cannot be. It's incapable of proof from reason because there are no real analogies to the Trinity in the natural world. There are many people who've tried to find illustrations. Uh, There are many illustrations that may perhaps throw a little bit of light on the doctrine of the Trinity. But even the most complex and complicated illustrations uh, fall short, fall very far short of illustrating what God is in himself. And they certainly fall far short of proving that that is what God is. I don't know if some of you are perhaps aware of one of the more modern illustrations of the Trinity. It's based on the idea uh, of... uh, the fact that ice and water and steam are all the one substance. But there is, in physics, the particular triple point. If I remember it rightly, it's just a fraction above freezing point, 0.01 degrees, and at six thousandth of an atmosphere, you'll find that steam and water and ice are able to coexist at the same time, changing backwards and forwards between one another. And some have tried to say, well, that coexistence is a sort of glimpse of the Trinity. But it falls very far short. You're not dealing with anything that's personal. It's something inanimate that's being dealt with. It is not something that would convince someone uh, who did not believe in the Trinity that that was what God was like. In the natural world, in the created realm, all the illustrations that have been pointed to fall far short. We only know that God is triune because he has revealed himself in this way. Now, from the end, from the late 1700s through to the middle of this century, thinking about the Trinity was not very popular. The Enlightenment elevated the status of human thinking, made human reasoning the the arbiter in all discussion. And because the doctrine of the Trinity is derived from Scripture, and because it can't be established by appealing to human reason or by arguing from some uh, postulate that seems plausible to people, the doctrine of the Trinity was treated as largely irrelevant or sometimes just simply dismissed as absurd. So we've got to be careful. Although we cannot deduce the Trinity uh, from anything that we observe in the natural realm, we've got to be careful also to say but the doctrine of the Trinity is not contrary to reason. 
It's part of the rebellion of mankind to suppose that we are dealing with a God who can be shaped and judged by finite reason. That we're dealing with a God that we can understand fully. And the doctrine of the Trinity is a perpetual reminder and has been over the centuries that we are dealing with a God whom we cannot understand fully. We are dealing with a God about whom we have accurate information only because he has been pleased to reveal it to us. Now, I stopped and I said up until about 1950. The last half century has seen a tremendous revival of interest in the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not sure that it's always been a very helpful uh, revival of interest. There are many uh, strands uh, of thinking going around in these days. And I want to look at some of them to give you a sort of perspective on it this evening. Because I think it's still perhaps the case that so often when it comes to the Trinity, we accept that it's proper and it's true, but we're not going to deny the truth of the Trinity. But so often it fails to grasp our thinking. So often this understanding of God, the way God has presented himself, doesn't really shape uh, the whole of our Christian thinking and living in the way it ought to. And part of the reason for that is that so often the doctrine of the Trinity is presented in very philosophical language. I'm going to have to use some of it at some point this evening. But what I want to begin by emphasizing is that you can understand the essence of the Trinity without it. The doctrine of the Trinity is, in, is scriptural. And there are those who are very quick to point out, but show me the word Trinity in your Bible. Of course, it's not there. But that's immaterial, so long as the basic features that are summed up in the word Trinity are warranted by Scripture. And there are three basic principles that can be stated regarding the scriptural doctrine of God. And the first is that there is one God. And the second comes in three parts. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And the third is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each distinct. There is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each distinct. In many ways, the definition of the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism cannot be bettered. There are three persons within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, and equal in power and glory. And I said in many ways it can't be bettered. 
it slips in two of these sort of philosophical words. There's person and there's substance. I, I prefer the other way because there's none of these big words there. There's one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each distinct. And if you accept that, you really have as much of the doctrine of the Trinity as the most profound theologian has been able to confuse it with. That's it. That is really all that we're able to say. Now we, I mentioned the shorter catechism there. It slips in this word person. It's one of the most slippery and difficult words to pin down as it's going. And many theologians have said, I use the word for want of a better. And that's why I prefer not to use it at all if you're trying to present it simply. You don't need to. But once you try grappling with this, then obviously you have to develop a vocabulary to try and tease out what is involved in these truths. Why do you want to tease out what's involved in these truths? Well, it's quite simple. There is no grander, higher pursuit than to think about God. There is nothing that is more beneficial uh, to one's spiritual understanding and to one's spiritual life than to have a closer and clearer idea of God. And therefore, throughout the centuries, the leading thinkers of the church have been brought back time and again to ponder just what is involved in this doctrine of the Trinity. And they've used words like person. It's well known that the word person originally meant the mask that an actor put on in, on the classical stage. And the word person, or rather the Latin word persona that is translated as person, then came to refer to the actor. Not just his mask, but the actor himself. And then it was taken over in legal circles eh, to refer eh, to someone who had legal and moral responsibility. Is someone who was a legal entity. And when the theologians of the early church were trying to answer the question, what is it that the Father is? What is it that the Son is? They first of all used words like the word face. They would say these are the three faces of God. But that very quickly became misunderstood. There were those who thought that the, these three faces were just different modes of God. In the same way as one man uh, can be. I was trying to get a, a local illustration. The headmaster of a school, the chairman of an institute, and a father in his family. He can be called chairman or headmaster or father. And there were those who, but he's still the one man. 
Yes, I was on the right idea. Um, There were those who said, well, that's all that's happening with God, with these names. They're just names for different faces of God. But that wasn't what the fathers, the Greek fathers were trying to express. And so they they tried other words. And they, they were saying, no, it's not just that God shows himself to us in three different ways. At one point as creator, as another as savior, another as regenerator. Uh, they were saying, no, there are real distinctions within the Godhead. And there became attached to these real distinctions the word person. The doctrine of the Trinity doesn't assert that there, is, there are three gods. And it doesn't say that the one God is three gods. God is not three In the same sense that he's one. Within the unity of God, there are three mutually related yet distinct centers of consciousness, of knowing, of loving, of willing. Each of the three persons of the Trinity incorporates the whole of what God is. They all have the same infinite knowledge. They all have the same infinite wisdom. They all have the same infinite power. They all have the same infinite holiness. And they they work together in such perfect harmony uh, that we are justified in thinking of the triune God as having one mind and one will. And yet, there are these three differences. And we haven't got a word apart from the word person. If you look at some of the ancient, the the older Greeks, they would use the word hypostasis. But that's just to confuse things, and that's just to show you that I know the word exists. Um, Let's leave it with persons just now. We don't, by person, mean an independent entity. You see, nowadays, person almost means the same as individual That's not what they were getting at. We don't mean there are three individuals in the Godhead. But we do mean that there are three centers of conscious awareness. They are said to love one another, to hear one another, to pray, to send, to testify of each other. And yet they're not independent. They can be distinguished, but they can't be separated It is mind-bending. It is not something that we have an analogy, a picture in this world that we can say, ah, it's just like that. But yet that is the only approach that does justice to the biblical evidence. Can I just look through the biblical evidence? Trinity is definitely a New Testament doctrine. Undoubtedly, there are glimmerings of the Trinity in the Old Testament. There's the well-known saying that the Old Testament is like a richly furnished chamber, but dimly lit. 
And the doctrine of the Trinity was not one of those doctrines that was illuminated, didn't come under the the spotlight of God's revelation in Old Testament times. It's there, uh, but it would never have been acknowledged to have been there were it not for the light of the New Testament. Can I just mention one verse that's often mentioned in these contexts? And that is the great uh, text in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's the, the Shema, as it's called, and you'll find it at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Very difficult to translate. You'll notice there are three alternatives. If you've got an NIV, there's three alternatives in the, uh, the margin. Now that was establishing in Old Testament times the very necessary truth of the oneness of God. That was the the task that was being faced in Old Testament times. The fundamental truth that God is one. And yet, when that truth was being taught, the language is such that it doesn't cause any problems when it comes to the New Testament Trinity. You see, there are two words in Hebrew for one. One of these words means a one that has been arrived at by bringing things together. And the other is one that is solitary and alone. They're very similar sounding. There's the word yachid which means one absolutely. And there's another word, echad, that means a united one. And in Deuteronomy 6, 4, when God laid down this revelation, he used the word echad, one of unity. Perhaps one or two examples will explain it. In Genesis 1, we find the phrase, there was evening and there was morning. One day. The one day was made up of two parts, and yet it was a whole. It's the same in Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, it's the word echad that's used, a united, a unity composed of separate parts. But when in Genesis 22, we read of God saying to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son, and the words repeated again later on in the passage, it's the word for one and only. It's the word for absolute one. And as just part of the preparation in Old Testament times, for the subsequent revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity. When God revealed himself as one to his Old Testament people, it was the word echad he used, the word for a united one, one who has been brought, one who is potentially composed of different parts, and not the word yachid that could just as well have been used, an absolute one. So, There's a lot in the Old Testament that with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of the light of the New Testament, we can now see a lot more in the Old Testament, in many places. 
But we would never have seen it. We would never have supposed it was there had it not been for the New Testament. And the real reason for that is because the revelation of the Trinity awaited that stage of God's redemptive purpose. The times were not right for the revelation of the Trinity in the unity of the Godhead until our Lord came in the flesh and until the Spirit was sent forth to sanctification. The basic facts of the incarnation of God the Son and the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit had to take place before it was possible to reveal the doctrine of the Trinity. And when you look at the New Testament, although you don't get a formal statement of the doctrine of the Trinity, the truth is there on every side. It's there at the birth of our Lord. Take Luke chapter 1 verse 25. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will, call, will be called the Son of God. Oh, where the Holy Spirit, the Most High, and the Son of God are mentioned as distinct in the one verse of Scripture. The baptism of Christ in the Jordan is one of the most dramatic pictures involving the Trinity. And it was used very often in the early church to counter modalistic thought. Those people who were saying, oh, these words, Father, Son, and Spirit, don't refer to three different things, but to three aspects of the one God. And the reply that was often given to them was, go to the Jordan and see. Because we read, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. There were the Son, the Spirit, and the Father are seen not to be different phases of God in time, different presentations of God, but to be involved at the one time in the one event. And Jesus' teaching is Trinitarian throughout. We know he had much to say about God the Father. He himself presented himself as the Son of God. Distinct from the Father and yet truly one with him. And particularly in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks also of the Spirit in the same terms. The Spirit as God and yet different from both himself and the Father. To take just verses of thoughts out of one of those passages in John chapter 14. Verses, starting at verse 16. I will ask the Father. So that there you have the Son over against the Father. 
and he will give you another counsellor, another that is distinguished from Jesus himself, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. He lives with you and will be in you. So that there Jesus is talking about speaking to the Father, addressing the Father, and also of the Spirit coming as different from him himself. And yet at the same time, one sees that the later on the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Father and the Spirit and the Son are presented as God and as different from one another. Perhaps the most formal announcement that Jesus made of all this is in the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you've often heard it said. It's in the name, singular. Not the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Nor does it say in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as if they were three not terribly different entities, beings. It asserts, that phrase, both the unity of the three and also in its repetition, the fact that there is a distinction between them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But really, I think the most significant thing is the use of the phrase, the name. If you read through the Old Testament, you find time and again, Talk of the revelation of God's name. Name summed up what was revealed of God. The name of any person to this, the Semitic mind encapsulated uh, the character, the power, the being of that person. The name of God in the Old Testament is a summary of all that God has shown himself to be. And indeed, in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jews started to use the name as a pious way of referring to God to avoid using his actual name. They used this oblique way of speaking about him. And here's Jesus saying to his disciples, I want you to engage in religious activity. I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to baptize. But it's not going to be in the name of Jehovah. Or in the name of Yahweh. I want you to do it now in the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't saying this is a new God. But he was saying here is a fuller understanding of what this God has revealed himself to be. He has revealed himself to have within himself this threefold center of consciousness, these three persons. The New Testament church shows no awareness of supplanting the Old Testament church in its understanding of God. They are as ardent in saying there is one God, 
as the Jews had been in Old Testament times. But they were also grappling with the tremendous revelation of the incarnation and of Pentecost. Because this one God had come in other ways. Had shown himself to be more than a single undifferentiated unity. And so we have here this truly Christian perception of God on the lips of our Lord himself. And that is the distinctive mark of Christianity, that it does justice to the fact that God is three persons in the one God. And the same Trinitarian view of God continues in the rest of the New Testament. That's one of the reasons why I, when I was asked for a passage, we read there at the beginning of Ephesians 1, where Paul is extolling the wonder of what God has done for his people. And he does it in a Trinitarian fashion. He begins by mentioning God the Father who has chosen his people. He goes on to mention what has been done by God the Son. And he finishes off with the blessing of the Spirit. Paul's thinking, though he doesn't come and say uh, there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His thinking is Trinitarian through and through. Because that is the, the way God has revealed himself in the salvation that was brought by his son. There, there's one, other, one or two other features of Paul's and the, the epistles in general, a way of looking at the Trinity. And this is where things begin to get a bit more controversial. They don't use the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yes, but Father and Son to the same extent. Paul's language is normally God, Lord, and Spirit. Of course, he's approaching the matter as a worshipper. He's not speaking as our Lord was from within the triune relationship. But it's seems to be fairly evident that in the rest of the New Testament, although the, the whole thinking is Trinitarian, the actual terms Father and Son don't seem to be of the very essence of the Trinity. And it's also the case that in the rest of the New Testament, the order is not uniform. In the Great Commission, it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when you look through the epistles, you can find the Trinitarian order in any one of the six possible variations. Indeed, in the Apostolic Benediction, one of the other grand Trinitarian affirmations in the New Testament, the order is Lord, God, Spirit. 213 rather than 123. And you can get all the variations that are possible. Uh, there, there's one that only occurs once, and you'll find it towards the end of the Epistle of Jude. In case you go looking, remember the end of the Epistle to Jude if you're getting stuck in one of them. And so there are theologians who've said one begins to wonder then whether the order, Father, Son, and Spirit, was especially significant to Paul 
and his fellow writers of the New Testament. If in their conviction the very essence of the doctrine of the Trinity was embodied in this order, would we not have expected it to have occurred in their numerous allusions to the Trinity? And it's at that point that we're beginning to see the way in which there has grown up in the church, and I'm thinking of the church in the broadest possible terms, two different ways of thinking about the Trinity. Now, I'm not talking about heretical views. I'm talking about views that are based on scripture, that are recognized as orthodox. Or they, they, both types of you need qualification to avoid falling into error. But there are two different ways of thinking about the Trinity. And I certainly, when I first realized this, found it clarified a lot of what I was reading for me to realize that different thinkers, uh, reputable thinkers, were coming at things in a somewhat different fashion. The easiest way to describe the two views is the Eastern and the Western view of the Trinity. And this is not just a piece of church history, because at the present moment, a great many evangelical thinkers in the Western world are being attracted back to the Eastern way of thinking about the Trinity. And so it's worthwhile spending a little while trying to work out what the difference between these two ways are. They're both accepting the scriptural evidence and they're both trying to say something to, to, to work out what the scriptural evidence is saying. The essence of... That's a bad word to use in this context. I shouldn't have used the word essence. The core thought in the Eastern way of thinking is to think of the oneness of God primarily in terms of God the Father. That's where they begin. The typical maxim of Eastern thinking, there is one God because there is one Father. Now they weren't trying to say that in some way the Son and the Holy Spirit were less divine. But they viewed the Father as the font of deity, the principal possessor and source of the divine essence. The Father possesses the divine essence in and from himself, and he eternally communicates it to the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there develops a vocabulary uh, of, um, the, the, to try and describe how this is done in terms of the eternal generation of the Son and the eternal procession of the Spirit. But they viewed, they looked at Scripture and they took from it the idea that it's the Father who is the font of deity and the Son and the Spirit, because of eternal generation in the case of the Son, and eternal procession in the case of the Spirit, have their deity communicated to them 
uh, by the Father. Now that word communicated is a dangerous word as well. Because to our mind, communicate, if I communicate something to you, I know it first and you have it second. But that wasn't the Greek way of thinking about it. When the, 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 what we're translating as communicate is the same word as you find in the New Testament epistles for fellowship. It's having in common. Communicate, something that is communicated is something that's in common. But even so, they felt that the Father was God simply. The phrase they would use for the Son is that he is God from God. That's the phrase that you'll find in the Nicene Creed. God proceeding forth out of God by eternal generation. And so is also the Holy Spirit is God from God. So in their way of thinking, when you try to work out what to say about God, you can't get any further back than God the Father. He is the source and bond of unity in the Trinity, binding the three persons together. Uh, he, is a, he is the font of deity in an eternal sense. Uh, the, it's not something that took place in time, something that's always been. But the Father is necessarily first person of the Trinity, communicating his entire essence to the Son. And to the Spirit. A little later on in church history, there was the very influential Bishop of Hippo, Augustine. And he viewed things in a different way. He viewed the oneness of God not as resting in the person of the Father, but in the divine essence. The divinity, the Godhead itself, he said, is the unity of the Trinity. And so to Augustine and most of Western theology, the basic maxim was there is one God because there is one divine essence. There is one basic um, being in which there are three persons. And these three persons are held together by the essence. That's a very clumsy representation of what Augustine takes many pages to state. Uh, if he were present, he would be wincing. Um, but I, I'm trying to simplify to a certain, obviously simplifying to a certain extent. But there are these the, the, the two quite different views. And they've caused a lot of problems over the years. Can we just develop for a moment what happened to Augustine's view? Because at the Reformation, uh, it got modified, well, it was developed very extensively by medieval theologians. But both Luther and Calvin were very disinclined to go beyond the statements of Scripture. Can I, just to show it's not Calvin alone, here's Luther. We should, he said, like little children, stammer out what the scriptures teach. That Christ is truly God, that the Holy Spirit is truly God, 
And yet there are not three gods or three beings. Although there are three persons, their being is not divided or distinguished. And with that, we should rest satisfied. That's basically where I started off. But Calvin took a major step forward. Because Augustine had still kept something of the Eastern view. He still tended to regard the Father as the fountain of deity. But Calvin argued that the Son and the Spirit, but mainly he was emphasizing the Son, were themselves God in the same sense as the Father. The word that's used is a Greek word, autotheos. They were authentically God. Their deity was not derived or subordinate in any way. And it's there that the problems, the, the, the tensions begin to arise. But isn't the sun called sun? Now to a western mind the terms father and son suggest the idea of source and superiority on the one hand and subordination and dependence on the other. But in Semitic languages, the main thrust of the language father and son is not first one, then the other, or one below the other. The main thought is sameness of nature. When Christ is named the son of God in scripture, it is saying he is truly and properly God. And you can see that illustrated in the New Testament. Because during the public ministry of Jesus, the Jews, in accordance with the Hebrew way of using the term, correctly understood Jesus' claim to be the Son of God as equivalent to asserting that he was equal with God or simply God. You find that in John chapter 5 and verse 18. John chapter 5 and verse 18. For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It wasn't that he was saying in some general sense that like all Israelites, God was the father of Israel. He was making, calling God his own father. He was making a specific claim in relation to God. And that claim was understood as the claim of equality. Similarly in John chapter 10 and verse 33. The Jews say, we are not stoning you for any of these but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And they hadn't misunderstood Jesus. That was the claim that he was making. That, in fact, was the claim uh, that uh, was used uh, to crucify him, uh, to sentence him to death, rather, at the Sanhedrin. The language of father and son 
doesn't necessarily imply subordination. To an Eastern ear, it is a claim of sameness of nature. It is also the case that, as you'll see in these in more modern translations, the word that was focused on very much in Eastern thinking, uh, the older translations have the only begotten son. Uh, whereas more modern translations tend to avoid the phrase only begotten and say one and only. The phrase only begotten son or one and only son, is expressive of the bond of love between the father and the son and doesn't really say anything at all about the relationships in the Godhead. Can I pull another piece of terminology out the hat? It helps, I think, to distinguish between the ontological trinity <laughs> uh, well the other phrase for it's the imminent trinity and immanent not imminent um, God in himself and the economic trinity and that's got nothing to do with the chancellor that's the trinity as we perceive it as we perceive God working with his creation and especially in salvation. In the New Testament, there are many places where the incarnate son talks of himself in terms of dependence on his father, talks of himself as subordinate to his father. But that is in terms of his role and his task as the mediator. And the difference between the Western and Eastern way of thinking about things it can be summed up to a certain extent in terms of the way in which the East is more prepared to argue on the basis of the analogy of what happens in creation and salvation to try and get some glimpse of what was eternally true in the Godhead. Now, no one is disputing that the terms father and son are true of the ontological trinity, God as he is in himself. The difference is that the Western view tends towards saying all that's being said by father and son is that they are both equally God but different Whereas the Eastern view tends to say, father and son, even in God as he is in himself, involves some sort of subordination, some sort of derivation. Take one of the most difficult verses that there is. I thought I would do one of them. It's two verses. John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. For, I'm reading the NIV, it doesn't make much difference which translation you use. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. 
Now, what's being said here? Well, life. Let's do the easy bit first. What is life? Well, life, when it's attributed to God in Scripture, denotes the property of independent existence and the power of giving life to those who don't have it. We call God the living God. We say in him is life. We mean he is the source of life, the fountain of being, the creative life principle. The father has life in himself. It belongs to him. It's also said here that the son has life in himself. He too derives his life from no one. But the difficulty of the passage is that it says the Father has granted or given the Son to have life in himself. That seems, on the face of it, at first glance at any rate, to mean that the Son is in some way subordinate, derived from the Father. Not equal. It is the Father the Eastern theologian says, it's the Father who's there, the fount of life. And he hands that on to the Son. But if you look at what's there, it doesn't say, so he has granted the Son life in himself. There's this extra and rather unusual phrase, to have life in himself. Or that he might have life in himself. Something is definitely given from the father to the son. But the question is, in what capacity is the son being viewed here? And I would argue that it's not the son in the ontological trinity. It's so handy a phrase that. God as he is in himself but the Son as the mediator of salvation. And that's, I think, made evidently clear by the next verse. And he has given him authority to, same verb, given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. This is something that the Father, in the outworking of the plan of salvation, grants to the Son as the God-man. It's similar to the phrase, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. Phrases that I would take as referring to Christ, God and man. The Eastern theologian says, okay, I'll grant you that. But if that's what happened in the outworking of salvation... Can't we by analogy then say that it must also have been true anyhow within the Godhead? If Christ coming into the world to save is a revelation of God's nature, and suppose this verse here only does apply to, in the first instance, to Christ as the mediator, God and man, then shouldn't we be able to argue back by analogy from that to something that must be true anyhow within God as he is in himself? And there are those two different points of view. 
And they've shown themselves as points of tension at various points in church history. Same thing applies also to the spirit. The spirit is in no way subordinate uh, as far as the Western way of looking at the Trinity is concerned. Whereas in the East, the spirit is, proceeds also from the Father. And you go to the Eastern theologian and say to him, where do you get the scriptural evidence for that? And he says, oh, well, there's the verses in John's Gospel where the Father is going to send the Spirit. And you say, yes, but that's got nothing to do with what God is as he is in himself. When the Father sends the Spirit, that's a reference to Pentecost. That's a reference to the way the Spirit comes into the life of the believer. That's part of what God does in the world, the created realm for salvation. And they say, well, even suppose I granted that, can't I still argue that if that's the way God works in salvation, it tells us something about what God's like in himself. That even although the verse in scripture is talking about what happens as God saves, it reflects what God is like in himself, and the spirit is in some way derived from the Father. And there are these two different ways of looking at things. And as you know, you've perhaps heard, may as well spend a minute or two doing this as well, there's been a long-standing dispute between East and West over the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's arisen from this very sort of area. It's over the, what's called the filioque question, where the Western Church added to the Nicene Creed Uh, which originally had just said that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, it added the phrase, and from the Son. And that was because of Augustine's thinking. He viewed uh, the three persons of the Trinity as held together by the divine essence. But to an Eastern theologian, To say that the Spirit comes from the Son is to imperil the whole unity of the Godhead. Because if the Spirit also comes from the Son, that means that the Son too is a font of deity, uh, the the way they characterize the Father. And you then have two fonts of deity and you're liable not to have three persons left in the Trinity, but only two uh, because you're describing the Father and the Son in the same terms. There was a fair bit of church politics as well in the dispute. It was the Pope that put it in, and they weren't speaking to him by that time. Uh, But quite apart from the church politics, there was a basic difference in their conceptualizing of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, one thing that must be said about the Eastern doctrine of the Trinity is that it is very much alive in Eastern thinking, the thinking of the Greek Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church more generally, than the doctrine of the Trinity has been in the West. And for that reason, quite a number of people, evangelicals, in the West have been attracted back to the Eastern way of thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's one of these questions where I don't think the truth necessarily lies in one camp or the other. We're grappling 
with something that is just too big for us. We're grappling with the nature of God himself. There are questions that just cannot, I think, be answered. Which is why I'm very happy to hide behind John Calvin. Because Calvin's basic view was that the less we try to say about the essence of God, the better, because it hasn't been revealed clearly in Scripture. And that what we should focus on is what God has revealed, and that's the economic trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, as they work out in salvation. They are distinct, they are God, And although Calvin was not wanting to quibble with any of the terms of the the orthodox statements, he really was saying uh, one ought to be very careful in trying to pry any further in these matters. I suppose I'm more Western in my thinking than Eastern. But I think that it is as well to stop short where scripture stops short. What then have we to say? Well, I think we've got to realize and promote that this conception of God is a worthy conception of God. There are so many ideas of God that leave him impersonal. God as the ground of being. God as some collection of philosophical attributes. The doctrine of the Trinity shows God not as static, but as dynamic. Shows God as involved, without any need for creation, in an intimate set of relationships between three persons. Now the analogy of love and the analogy of self-consciousness can never prove the triune nature of God, but they do commend it. The God of Scripture is not a God who is alone. Although he is one, he is not solitary. He is the God who has rich fellowship within the Godhead. Because there are these three centers of consciousness, which seems to be the phrase I'm using this evening uh, to to paraphrase persons. There are three persons in the Godhead. And when we say God is love, Augustine was left with God loving himself uh, in a very almost uh, self-satisfied fashion. But when we say God is love and we have three persons... That is not an artificial exercise. That is one that is real. We have a God who is self-aware. One of the ways in which we think of self-consciousness, self-awareness nowadays, is that you have to have something to relate to. The triune God is able to relate from all eternity to himself because there are the three centers of consciousness. It presents a picture of God as God who is active, As God who is fulfilled in himself. As God who therefore is to be praised all the more. That he ever thought of creating. And that especially he ever thought of saving 
a creation that had gone dangerously wrong, totally wrong. It's against that background that one has a picture of what is involved in the Godhead. It's also the case that the doctrine of the Trinity means we can justify worshipping the Son and the Spirit. It's not a reversion to paganism. It's not the case that we have three gods. We have one God in three persons, all equally divine and all equally worthy of worship. That was one of the problems of the early heresy of Arianism that's still prevalent in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They will use all sorts of grand words regarding Jesus Christ, but they will not say he is truly God. They'll call him divine, but it's a second order of deity. And really, any worship that's given to a second order of deity is pagan worship. It is not worshipping the one true God who alone is worthy of worship. But the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, keeps us from (coughs) descending into paganism. And there is one third and final thing. And that is because, and this is an emphasis that is becoming much more prevalent in recent thinking about the Trinity. Some dangers associated with it. I'm not endorsing it fully. Notice how careful I am here. Not endorsing it fully, but it's got something worthwhile. And that is that in the Trinity, we see the perfectly functioning society. We have Father, Son, and Spirit living together in total harmony and cooperation. And that gives meaning to the way in which society in general should exist, and particularly the church as society should exist. And those who think along these lines and are thinking what this means, focus particularly on John's Gospel and chapter 17. The NIV renders it at verses 20 and 21, reading the 21, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's there brought together by Jesus the way in which the Father is in him and he is in the Father and the way in which the church should cohere, that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. So that when we are looking at the oneness and the interaction between the persons of the Godhead, we are actually looking at a model that should characterize the church of Jesus Christ. And of course, that is one of the characteristics of modern theology. Uh, People always ask, what is the practical implication of this? Why do we think about this if it doesn't have a practical implication? Well, there is the practical implication. 
that when we are thinking about the life of the Trinity, Christ is there presenting that as a model to which the church, to which believers in the relationships with one another, it should be conforming now and will certainly be conformed perfectly hereafter. I said I would stop. I'm stopping. Thank you. I too am being cautious. Um, I wouldn't dream at all of attempting to summarise what has just been said. Um, What I do know is that I'm quite certain that we will all have gained a great deal from what has been said to us, and I'm sure there's some new insights there. I'm going to give you one minute, not to leave the room, but if you wish... Not that I follow fashion at all. If you wish, you may stand up and shake a leg or a hand or exchange a word, and then we'll have a a time of questions and comments. But just for a minute, if you wish to do that, but please don't leave the room, you can do that. A lot of questions or comments to make. Um, It's always difficult in these situations, I think, to avoid saying something which doesn't sound stupid. That's why I won't make the first comment. (laughs) Um, But I, Professor Mackay, is very happy to take comments or or questions or maybe for you to expand on something he said or illuminate something he said. Um, Please, um, please far away. If you don't, I'll call you by name. (laughs) Yes, sir. St. Patrick get it wrong? I did mention the shamrock uh, in our little aside. Did St. Patrick get it wrong? <laughs> it depends who he was talking to. It's, it's a good enough starting point as an illustration, your shamrock and the three leaves, and it's the one plant. But it doesn't have any element of personality in it. And you couldn't, this is my point, you couldn't, if I just said, here's a shamrock, you couldn't get from there to the triune God. Would never have suggested itself to you. Uh, It can be used as a very partial illustration. And we, we need anything we can grasp because we're trying to deal with something that's way beyond us. You can perhaps get a little bit further with love Uh, love inevitably implies two parties at any rate Uh, and Augustine developed love, the the one who is the lover and the one who is loved and also the love between them as a third party but I don't think he would ever have thought of that had he not known there was three there in the first place (laughs) he was trying to get three out of it Uh, It's the same with self-consciousness. You need at least two. But you would never have been able just from... To to say, God must be self-aware. Therefore, God cannot be a monad, one undifferentiated whole. There must be something else in him. But I don't think you would have got to the doctrine of the Trinity. You can perhaps use... Once once the doctrine's been revealed, the illustration may help a little bit towards understanding it. But the doctrine of the Trinity defies uh, naturalistic theology, arguing from, you know, 
human presuppositions of the world as we see it and getting to the scripture doctrine. Not that it's contrary to reason, it's just that it's revealed. Simon. And then I have some things. Thank you very much indeed for, for what you've um, had to say to us tonight. When you're doing evangelism, people do ask about the Trinity. Some people will say they find it impossible to understand the Trinity, and therefore they find it impossible to believe in God. And uh, I've had uh, Muslims who will pick up on the Trinity as something they know Christians find very difficult to explain. And so they'll try and catch you out in public meetings by asking about the Trinity. And it's that reason why we have analogies like the ice in water or uh, a child who I heard once talking about aquafresh toothpaste with a red, white, and blue stripes. Each of the different functions were all part of the same toothpaste, that was, you know. What, um, I'll remember that one. <laughs> Can you uh, tell us what um, sort of answers uh, do you give to an honest questioner uh, in an evangelistic setting about the Trinity? I think my answer has to be I very much go back to that very simple set of three statements that I made and try to avoid big words. (laughs) With what success, I leave you to guess. Um, You often get people who've got a little bit of knowledge and they say, I can't see how 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. To which you can reply, try 1 times 1 times 1, and that is 3. You know, if that's the level at which they're operating. But I think the simplest thing to do is to be open and say, this is difficult. And one argument that I have found very useful is the one I was touching on towards the end there and that is that it gives a conception of God that commends itself the God who is not isolated the God who is not dependent on his creation and that particularly allows you to challenge uh, the fatalistic conception of God uh, that that, uh, occurs in Islam uh, it allows you to show that it's a free choice of God interacting, creating and interacting with his world, uh, even when the world has, this, that world has rebelled against him. They are deep questions. Uh, and if you're... Uh, I don't have slick answers, uh, but I do think that... Uh, The other line of approach is to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that, the, the early church didn't want to talk about the Trinity. They wanted to talk about Jesus Christ. It was because they were trying to grapple with him being God and man and what that meant for the oneness of the Godhead that they were led into discussing the Trinity. And I think myself that in that situation... Uh, If you can get someone talking and thinking about who Jesus Christ is and what scripture has presented him as being, uh, you've gone a great way down the the road in pre-evangelism.
if not and in presenting the gospel. So I'm suggesting two things basically. Keep it simple and probably focus in on Jesus Christ rather than trying to have shamrocks or toothpaste or whatever. Incidentally, what kind of toothpaste do they use in the Highlands and Islands? Well, while you're thinking about that, there's a question over there, I think. Was... Yeah, I'd just like to hear the professor's comments on addressing prayers to the Holy Spirit or to the Lord Jesus. It's evident in many of the modern, more modern songs where, where the spirit of prayer is addressed to the Holy Spirit. I would like your comments on that. Again, I have to admit, I don't have an easy answer. We are told by our Lord in the prayer he, the pattern prayer he gives to address the Father. There is in the example of Stephen's martyrdom direct prayer to Christ and there are other passages similarly in the book of Revelation. Given that the Holy Spirit is God... Uh, there is nothing improper in addressing the Holy Spirit in prayer. But I don't, I don't think it fits in with the scriptural presentation of the Holy Spirit in the work of salvation. The, the, the presentation that's given of the Spirit is the Spirit will take of the things of Christ and make them known there is something almost self-effacing in, in the work of the Spirit. And given that our Lord himself said, uh, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, um, I certainly feel happier with that. The interesting question is whether, well, what are you then doing if you just simply address God? in prayer and this brings up the question of is there another level of consciousness in the Godhead you have the three persons but if you're talking to God to whom are you talking and the answer that is normally given that's <laughs> another case of watch this man, he's not telling you what he thinks, he's just telling you what everybody else thinks. But the answer that's normally given is that in using the language of addressing just God as such, uh, one is addressing all three persons of the Trinity. And that too would be scripturally warranted. So I, I'm, we, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I am saying that an overemphasis on prayer to the Holy Spirit would seem to me not to fit in with the, the scriptural patterns. Yes, sir. Some time ago, I was given a booklet by Jehovah's Witnesses, and basically it was trying to disprove the Trinity. And the point that they made there was that this is not basically something that came in uh, with the heretical Christian church as they saw it but there was something that was there in Eastern religions and paganism many hundreds of years before 
Now, I don't know whether that's right or wrong. I wonder if Professor Mackay would like to comment. <clears throat> there have been a number of scholars who have identified triads of gods in a variety of pagan religions. Um, I can certainly think of a triad in Egyptian religion, but it's one based on the human family. It's a god, a goddess, and a son. They don't, to my way of thinking, have very much relationship uh, as models uh, to, to, to the Trinity at all. You can't draw a line between them. The only thing that they share in common is the concept of three. Um, was it Gladstone, Prime Minister, last century? I have to watch that now. It won't be last century much longer. Um, he thought he detected a triad of gods in, in Homer, in ancient Greek poetry. But you, the, the, the whole thought world and the whole thought pattern is, is, is quite different. Uh, the, from the point of view of the way in which the doctrine of the Trinity appears, the astounding thing is it appears amongst a people that were fervently monotheistic. It does not come at a time in their history when they were being influenced by paganism in any form. They were virulent opposers of all pagan thinking. And those at the level of modern secular thought about religious development, those facts, and they are undisputable facts, rule out the thought that this grew up as some derivation from pagan origin. That's how I would respond to that. Yes, Mr. Hart. Uh, I'm not sure I want to take questions from <laughs> no, no, no. They're liable to be too difficult. <laughs> be simple. What would you say, how personally does a believer experience the three persons of the Trinity? What would be the normal Christian experience of three persons of the Trinity? I should have stopped a few seconds ago. I knew he would. As distinct from God. Yes. I think that one would have to be very careful. I'm not sure that one would be in a position always to say, you know, that was the Father and that was the Son, or that was the Spirit. I think the th one's perception of God's action in one's life is filtered, is uh, modeled after the teaching of Scripture, and that therefore... If there was, and we'll talk about God's providence hopefully in one of the further lectures, if there was something providential which is often seen as the action of the Father, 
it would be a learned response to say that was the Father intervening in my life. The Christian's experience of the Son is obviously very much in terms of a living relationship with Christ as through the uh, the message of Scripture. I suppose nowadays you have to watch very carefully what you say about the relationship of the Spirit. But I personally take the view that the believer's relationship with the Spirit is very much a hidden one. That the Spirit does not make a show of himself or what he is doing. And that therefore, uh, I, although you know there are passages, grieve not the Spirit, the Spirit is a person, the Spirit can be offended. But I, I personally feel that it's very difficult to say that if one experiences, say, a time of joy in one's life, that that is joy from the Spirit as distinct from joy from God. Uh, so I am really saying that I, I find it very difficult as regards the Spirit. And as regards the Father and the Son, it is very much in terms of the clues and the hints and the, te- the right teaching in Scripture as to the various areas of uh, the wor- outworking of salvation in which they are present. Um, I, I, I know that I haven't really got as deep on that one as you wanted. Don't you think the Spirit controls our conversion? That he touches our lives and the, gives us the miracle of conversion? Yes, oh, undoubtedly. It's a Spirit that works deep within and gives new life. But the, the, the believer's perception of that is of the consequences of the Spirit's action, not of the Spirit himself. That, that's the way I look at it. So that, you know, if you say, um, was it the Spirit who was active in your life uh, when you came to know the Lord? Yes. But did you know the Spirit in some way other than the consequence of his intervention in your life? Uh, I would tend to say no. And if you ask me, well, how do you know then that it was the Spirit who was active? Then you have to say, well, there was a change, and it's the Scriptures that have told me how that change must have taken place. That's the way I tend to think about it. I'm going to call a halt now, because uh, we have four more weeks beyond this to explore... (laughs) Many of the issues, I'm sure, which we want to do. I'm sure you would want me, first of all, to say thank you to Professor Mackay for his uh, very illuminating lecture this evening. Uh, In an age of of spin, um, it is so refreshing, that age which has infected the church as well as our national political life, so refreshing to hear someone, first of all, take his audience seriously and present content rather than spin and flip, and all the things that we're used to these days. I'm making no general political comment. You understand that. Um, but it it'd be very good to hear from Professor Mackay tonight what he's had to say, and the way in which he's answered our questions, and I very much hope 
that he has whetted your appetite and that you'll be back next week. And uh, if you have friends, I'm sure you have friends, if you have friends, <laughs> do bring them along as well. We're going to be focusing next week on the holiness and the justice of God.